Hello and welcome to How Do You Solve a Problem Like. This is a brand new podcast from Unlimited and each episode focuses on a different social issue, but more importantly, how social entrepreneurs are tackling it through impactful and innovative solutions. This week, we'll be looking at how you solve a problem like youth violence. Worst unrest seen in the northern city for 30 years. The knife crime crisis, which is killing four people a week, with offences up a staggering 21% last year. This is such a shock. 17 years old. She didn't deserve that. Hooded youth broke into shops and took what they wanted in copycat behaviour seen in London. She became the fifth person shot dead in the capital this year. 42 others have died of knife wounds. They blame it on drill, but it's deeper than that. They blame it on drill, but it's deep in the rap. And this whole thing's a game, now they call it scoring points. When the death become a game, that shit is so lame. Some even record it for the fame. I pray I won't die of a materialistic gain. So my name is Millie Charles. I'm a radio producer, podcast producer, reporter and co-host of this podcast for Unlimited. And I'm also a fledgling social entrepreneur and I started working with Unlimited just over a year ago and that relationship has led us to be here making a podcast about other social entrepreneurs. And hello, I'm Anna Markland. I'm a venture manager at Unlimited and I support entrepreneurs like Millie to help them scale their impact and to make themselves a sustainable business. This week, we'll be hearing from two fantastic social purpose businesses, Think for the Future, co-founded by Sherry White. They are looking at some of the root causes of youth violence by using a data-driven approach to tackle social and emotional barriers to learning in schools. The social enterprise initially was set up to provide employment opportunities for individuals with a criminal record. It so happens that the best person to be able to achieve those outcomes and those impacts are the types of individuals that we employ. We're also meeting Eliza Ribeiro, who started Lives Not Knives at the age of just 15. I saw one of my friends get stabbed in front of me. It wasn't until Wesley was killed that I kind of ever felt any pain from anything. I felt like it was very normal. Everyone knew someone that had been stabbed or everyone was carrying. Millie had a chance to go out and interview both of them. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing meeting Cherry and Eliza. They're both such inspirational women who've done such an incredible amount of work and both very young, actually. They're both in their mid-twenties still, so even more impressive, really. Today we're talking about youth violence. I think we should say straight away that we were both a little bit nervous about talking about this issue. It's so incredibly sensitive. I think the reason that we are slightly hesitant to talk about it is because we do have limited, thankfully limited experience of the situation ourselves. What I think social enterprise is really great at doing is empowering people who do have lived experience and who are most motivated to make a change, to go out and to find solutions that work for them and to work with communities that are impacted directly to come up with something that that could actually make a real change for them. So it's really great that we're hearing from Eliza today, who tells a really powerful story of how she came to set up Lives Not Knives. 
soon as I knew that we were going to do this podcast on this subject, she was the first person that came to mind. I met her about five years ago when I was making a documentary called 10 Teens That Changed the World. And I was just so impressed with her. It's incredible to see where she was when I met her and what she's doing now. And she's still only 25. And when I met her, the first thing I was surprised about was the location that I found her in. Hello. I didn't expect you to be in like a huge shop in a shopping mall. So unexpected. This is not what I was expecting at all, and no disrespect to you at all, but I thought, you know, usually sort of small charities, you'd find them in kind of an office, maybe in a sort of off-the-beaten-track sort of area. And we're in Croydon, but we're in a shopping centre, and we've got Next and Zara and all the sort of high street biggies in here. And then here we have this big space with Lives Not Knives and all your T-shirts and changing rooms and all sorts going on. Tell me about how you came here. So we work with the Croydon Partnership, which is the Westfield and Hammerson Partnership that came together to redevelop Croydon. About six years ago, we met them and they offered us a home here got our office space here we also do our mentoring and support work from here host events from here I suppose in terms of punctuating the consciousness of the local community people are just out here doing their shopping and then there's this big presence here from Lives Not Knives that must work quite well as well yeah people pop in all the time a lot of the times it's older people just being happy that we're in the community because of everything they've seen on the news Let's start back at the very beginning. You started Lives Not Nice when you were 14 mm. and you are very much someone who was directly affected by knife crime and youth violence. Can you tell me how this issue touched your life? I was excluded from school when I was 13 and I think the people that I started hanging around with were from very, very different backgrounds mm. to me. I saw one of my friends get stabbed in front of me. It wasn't until Wesley was killed that I kind of ever felt any pain from anything. I felt like it was very normal. Everyone knew someone that had been stabbed or everyone was carrying or everyone was doing something at a time, smoking or whatever. Then, yeah, I think after Wesley died, that was the most pain I think I felt. And I think I was 16 at the time. That's what now, why we're trying to do so much prevention is because a lot of the kids, especially in the past few years, are losing a friend before they've ever lost a family member and no death and it's just dealing with a completely different kind of trauma to know that their life got taken from them rather than it be a natural cause and with natural causes you still have to deal with it in your own way but to know that you couldn't do anything and it got taken from them I think is just a different type of pain. Is there an awful lot of traumatised young people? Yeah and a lot of the kids are referred to us and it had domestic violence in the home or there's been alcohol abuse in the home or substances and a lot of them are in care and a lot of them have already been arrested before they're referred to us and they're referred to us when they're 15. We look at poverty and then we look at drugs and then we look at gangs and we don't look at all of them correlating. I think the Childhood Trust report shows that poverty is a straight leading factor to youth violence yet because we're not putting them all together we're just seeing it as people are choosing to get involved in gangs and people are choosing to stab people and we're not seeing what actually they've got serious serious issues that we should be dealing with from when they're much younger 
So there's all these different compounding social issues sort of feeding into each other, yet from a kind of outsider's point of view, we're seeing them as all separate different issues and in different boxes. But actually you're saying you can't just say, let's just tackle this one issue, you've got to tackle everything. And how many of them are going to die before we do something about it? And that's the thing, because we're looking at statistics and numbers and we're not showing that they're real children and real people. But you were one of these traumatised children. You witnessed horrific violence ending in a fatality of someone you were close to. I mean, why do you think that you managed to kind of break the cycle in a sense? Because like you've described, often this trauma, it's kind of a vicious circle and it spirals downwards. And quite often that's the case that we see people are get deeper involved, more traumatised and perhaps more in, embedded in that life. Whereas you actually, that for you was a, a turning point. Why do you think that was? I think I'm, I'm very lucky. I've always had very strong mum and grandma. That wasn't the lifestyle I was brought up with. I didn't understand it as much as everyone else did. I wasn't used to it. All of that was outside of my comfort zone in how my family raised me. I think I took myself out of that situation. I started Lives Not Knives. So tell me how Lives Not Knives started. So it started with the T-shirts and they were just a promote that youth could have fun without violence and not all of the kids were stabbing each other. At the time it was like Asbo generation on the front of every newspaper and kids killing each other and youth on youth crime. And there wasn't one positive story about young people. So we wanted to prove that youth could have fun without violence as well as showing how many people weren't accepting that all of these kids were dying and that a load of young people cared. And then it was meant to be, I think, just like a a campaign to show Croydon Council that they need to do something, they need to put more resources for young people, they need to do a bit more work with young people and we pushed for the education and we've been working in primary schools since then um, teaching young people about knife crime and youth violence and it started just with a few mentors going into the schools and we were working in 10 schools and we've now we've worked with over 50,000 young people in primary and secondary schools in Croydon, talking to them about knife crime, youth violence, their rights, answering the questions they have. And it's just been a very big journey. And I think now, every day, we're getting emails from people now from all different parts of the country that need support and help. I mean, it's good that they know that they need support and help, but it's really sad at the situation as to why they need it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember having a conversation, actually, after we first met. So I should say, because so we, we met, when was it? Like five years ago? And I remember telling my a friend, you know, back in Bristol about you and, and about, you know, and I was living in Dalston at the time. And, you know, and it isn't uncommon if you live in London to walk past a police scene and then you realise it's a, a young person who's been stabbed. And I remember sort of recounting this to someone and saying the figures of how many young people are dying and they didn't believe me they just didn't believe me because they're like they were thinking well why wouldn't this be national news i guess that's one of the challenges is is actually just for people who don't see it they don't maybe don't believe it i think even for people that know it's happening on their doorstep unless they felt it they don't believe it either it's just looking at the issues a bit differently and actually saying do you know what fair enough i didn't know that young person but their life mattered Let's say we met around five years ago. You were working on this part-time. So how have you gone from doing this part-time to being full-time, having five staff members and being the CEO and occupying this huge space (laughs) in the shopping mall? 
we have always done this work and I think we've seen it so important one because it was Wesley's legacy but also because I think it's something that myself and my whole team care about passionately and we care way more about prevention than cure and I think I went through a time when I was I was thinking I was 22 and I was like I don't want to do this anymore like I don't enjoy it I hate having to talk about myself all the time it's not fun talking about Wesley or reliving things from my past and I went traveling for a year to Brazil and I went to the favelas and I went to Chicago and I just realized that there's amazing people doing amazing things all around the world um, but there's also a lot of people that need help and I think charities at home um, so I came back and I think I was even more motivated and I took over as CEO then and built all these amazing people and my staff that I've got around me. Tell me about your team that you've got here. It's a small, yes, small but strong team. There is five, including me. Well, we run quite a few programmes, so we've got three main programmes we run. We've got Karen and Jack and Tisha who work on our Groundworks programme which is called Aspire, and that's basically working with young people in people referral units and making sure that we can give them the one-on-one support that's needed to get them into education or into a job or into an apprenticeship and then mentor and support them while they're there. We see them once a week and know their families, get to know their managers and kind of try and make sure everyone's working together for the best thing for that young person. The other programmes we run would be Karen and Jack work in a school one day a week with kids that are most at risk of exclusion and looked after children. What we've found is with some of the research that we've done and some of the research that other people have done is that there's a huge correlation between pupil referral units and prison and you're four times more likely to go to prison after attending a pupil referral unit so what we want to do is make sure and just like we've, we've done prevention since lives and i started is to prevent people from getting excluded from school so they're not at that risk and then we've got paul who runs all of our social media does all of our short videos records all of our events and just makes sure that everything's up to date and I think it's really important people know where their money's going because so much of our funds are from people in the community and we're not government funded so what we're trying to do is do a bit more blogging and a bit more videos and imagery so that people understand where their money's going and what the work we're doing and we're keeping everyone that has supported us up to date. As an organisation in order to grow, in order to be more effective, to be uh, have a wider reach and a bigger impact what do you need to do? We're at the moment looking at more corporate social responsibility and looking at corporates and asking them to support their schools in the local area and support us and help fund the resources that all of the teachers need in their local areas because a lot of the time the schools are funding it themselves but when the schools fund it, it means that they're having to cut budgets from other areas. So we're looking at definitely getting a few main corporate sponsors to help support, just do all the work we do on a much bigger level. I really want to push for mandatory education of youth violence in primary and secondary schools next year and I want the government to support that. And if it's not our resources, I want resources to be put in all schools with teachers that know how to talk about it properly. I think once the teachers know what they're talking about, then it just becomes an open conversation anyway and it'd be less of a taboo. So last week I actually came to see you at an event you were hosting and that was in BNP Paribas Bank and you had an amazing lineup of speakers and tell so, me a little bit about that. 
one of our trustees works at BNP Paribas, but I met her a year ago and she basically got involved because she'd seen something in front of her on her way home from work and was involved in a whole trial and everything. And since then, she's been extremely supportive and given us all free media training and social media training and houses all of our meetings up there. And it's, it's lovely. And I think what we wanted to do was show that other people can get involved. I mean, we love a financial way, but it doesn't have to be a financial way. And you can all do your bit. Eliza, absolutely amazing woman and doing some really incredible work. But I know it's been really, really tough for her. That lived experience that she has, which really is the thing that gives her the legitimacy. That's why young people listen to her. That's why governments listen to her. That's why she's been called to the House of Commons to speak and and everyone's interested in her story. But she's a 25-year-old woman and sometimes that can weigh heavily on her emotionally, you know, having to revisit that dark time in her life again and again and to kind of expose that side of yourself in public can be quite vulnerable and quite draining. But as I say, it's also her superpower and I think she feels a great sense of responsibility. That's really interesting. Unlimited have been doing work recently around leaders with lived experience because we know that people need more support. And whilst they can have some of the best ideas for what changes need to be made, they also face some of the toughest challenges to getting their social purpose business up and off the ground. You mean like practical challenges as well? Things, I mean, you know, talking from lived experience, actually. Things like bank loans and bank credit um, and even just kind of making ends meet when you've come from quite a chaotic background or you've overcome a difficult time in your life, whether that's, you know, homelessness or violence or, you know, whatever that issue is that you've you've experienced. Yeah, absolutely. And I think really importantly around this episode and youth violence, I think what's really nice is we see businesses that are genuinely tackling prevention and really focused on that, like Eliza. And I know Sherry is really passionate about that as well. Um, But equally, that if you have then had experience of violence and maybe slipped into the criminal justice system, how do we help you afterwards as well? And it's great to see some really fantastic ideas for social purpose businesses One of those businesses I've had the privilege of working with are Cracktit. They're based in London and they hire young people who have had experiences of offending and train them to fix smartphones so that they have an alternative source of income to illegal activities. And Clayton Planter, who is a Bristol-based entrepreneur, his social enterprise is called Street to Boardroom. And basically what he does is he harnesses skills that people may have used in criminal activity and convinces and supports people through a workshop that he runs to take those skills and use them in a legal context and inspiring others like him to become entrepreneurs and use those kind of enterprising skills that people have developed on the streets and use them in a legal setting. And I just feel like an idea like that couldn't have come from someone who didn't have lived experience. You know, he's taken like a really a unique angle on it and seen the sort of positives that people might overlook otherwise. You know, I think having had that kind of life experience, you maybe have a slightly unique take on things and that that's actually, you know, a skill that you can't learn in in a book or uh, through a course. <laughs> You know, it just really makes sense. And I think more and more evidence is mounting that we need to harness this expertise. Actually, just this morning, I saw that there's a new grant that's just opened up for leaders with lived experience. And 
the reason I think this is happening is not for charitable reasons necessarily, but actually because this is the most effective. People who have experienced an issue know best how to solve it and can inspire others from within that community. And that's something that Cherry White found. Her business actually originally started up trying to give employment opportunities to people with criminal records. But what she found was those people with criminal records got the best results with the children she was working with. So it made absolute sense from a business perspective. There was nothing charitable about it. This was the one that got results. My name is Sherry. I am one of the founders of Think for the Future. Essentially, we run a behavioural intervention where we position behaviour mentors into secondary schools, working with students at risk of permanent exclusion, at risk of sort of antisocial behaviour, but also looking at aspirations and attitudes towards education. Typically, our mentors are from a similar walk of life to the students we're working with. And can you tell me how you started to do this work and where your sort of passion and inspiration came from? I grew up in South East London in a council estate um, in Lewisham. Um, I was sort of lucky enough to have a very stable home life and um, it meant that I was good in school, even though my school wasn't particularly good. I avoided those peer pressures um, and managed to get into the University of Nottingham. Whilst at university, I was involved in a social enterprise sort of programme, sort of starting off on a project where we positioned students into the local prison and we were running an employability programme. Um, we had sort of corporate sponsors and it looked really amazing and really sort of jazzy. However, when we sort of looked fundamentally at the results, the inmates that were on our employability programme still sort of left prison, didn't find a job and a lot came back in. So as a sort of naive 19 year old, that sort of sparked my brain of, oh, actually, okay, let's not look at sort of token programs, but let's look a little bit more into the local community. Let's look at the local demographics. And we dived into the education system a little bit and started to do some research. Quickly realized Nottingham had the second worst schools out of the whole of the UK. We started looking at education-based programmes, what's out there and what's effective, what's outcome-driven. We got a grant from the university. At the time, the programme looked at drug use, gang membership, um, knife crime, sexual exploitation. And so we hired three members of staff part-time who were ex-gang members, ex-drug users. We put them into schools to work with those students. And it sort of evolved into our behaviour mentoring programme that it is now. So we currently work across the East Midlands area. We have around about 60 secondary schools that we position behaviour mentors in. And we're growing quite rapidly. So we've sort of crossed the quarter of a million pound mark in terms of revenue from sort of selling our school programme. All of our staff members are full-time, permanent contracts paid really well compared to sort of the industry standard. So yeah, you touched on the idea of a business model and you're very much a social enterprise, not a charity. For anyone who's sort of new to the concept of social enterprise, can you kind of explain the difference and how that sort of relates to the work that you do and the business model that you have? The fundamental difference is that the social enterprise model is targeting social outcomes, not just chasing profits. But I think it's important that those two are merged really tightly because we are selling impact. And for us, those outcomes are reductions in exclusions, reductions in negative behaviour points. And I think that's why we sort of tie the two so closely together because they go hand in hand and one helps the other. How easy is it to sell that idea of prevention rather than cure? 
when the behavior is bad in school the school is seeing the effect of that and i suppose we're understanding that, that behavior sort of carries on it can then go into the bigger societal problems such as crime etc so we're still providing a cure and a preventative model as well it's a cure for the school because actually if they've got really awful behavior we work in schools where knife knives are con- consistently brought into schools um and it's a really big incidents are happening and because of sort of the strain on teachers and the strain on people going into teaching, we're sort of relieving some of that pressure. But it is then also saying we can work with this pupil so they won't become permanently excluded or they won't become sort of a high profile student in your school that you are battling with sort of on a day to day basis. We work on a paint by results model. So schools will pay us based on the outcomes we achieve. And at the moment, schools are really good at collecting data. They collect negative behavior points and positive points so if a student does something wrong it is logged which is useful for being able to understand impacts and understand what effect are you having because ideally you see those negative points going down and those positive points going up knife crime does cross over to a lot of our schools it's typically the inner city schools where we know that there are knife crime incidents we are involved in sort of knife crime incidents as as a sort of organization and so i went and sat in on a session last week where a mentor who had been involved in knife crime growing up was talking about it very frankly to the students who we know and suspect are carrying knives and drug selling so our mentors have had that lifestyle and understand the consequences and when they're speaking very frankly to these types of students and running through our curriculum we sort of speak from a relatable point and it's about saying actually we understand okay your family might be involved here or you've got these pressures but actually this is the right path and it's how to sort of get them onto that. You touched on the idea of why these children or young people are getting to this position in the first place and I would assume that that is often to do with childhood trauma and adverse childhood experiences. How do we as a society deal with that? I think the biggest thing is role models. When things start to go bad is when you've got, say, younger students that are then looking up to inappropriate role models and I think that can sort of change their perception of resilience Whilst there might be home struggles from our side, we sort of say that the second best option is is to be able to have that stability within their education system where they're coming to school. We're picking up on issues and and reporting them from our side because we get our mentors get a lot of disclosures. But equally, we're providing that sort of strong role model that can build resilience for them to sort of navigate away from those lifestyles. A lot of my friends at primary level and secondary level went down a really sort of bad route. And the reason I, I think I had the resilience not to, I think it's because I had a, a really strong home life in comparison. We're very much interested in the sort of social entrepreneur journey as well. And I'm just interested in how you kind of scaled things to the position you're at now and what the challenges have been along the way. The biggest thing for us, it was testing the market. In the onset, we had debt investment. We've only had a small amount of grants. We sort of decided to take on the risk ourselves to get to that point and to build a commercial and social enterprise at at the same time. So in terms of scaling, I knew I could scale this when I had sort of my first school pay 7,000 for a programme. That's how our mentor in, in a school once a week for a full academic year. So I thought, okay, this has got legs. But the moment we built to a position where we've got schools almost on a waiting list um, and they are 
chewing our arm off for our mentors to go into their school. And I think it's because we was, we've been clever and we've bided our time. We've known when to sort of pounce and when to hold back and when to say actually our quality or our internal capabilities aren't there yet. And so we had two years where it was just me. I had about eight schools. I had two mentors and that was manageable. That was great. I knew if I tried to push it any further, we would then start to have issues with quality. We had an inkling, like I had that gut feeling that the financial viability was there. We ran the numbers. We sort of, we've been testing it with our schools for quite a long time. And, and that's what sort of paved the way for us to know how to grow and when to grow. And what's been the most difficult thing, either personally or organisationally in this journey? It's pretty epic. And you're still very young as a business and as a person. <laughs> The biggest thing, and in, in the early days, and people laugh about this, I think was being a young girl, going into schools and talking with head teachers and managing the reception that you'd get back. Um, now it's less of a problem, which maybe says I've aged or I've got better at speaking to people. Yeah, the, the age-old problem of being <laughs> trying to be taken seriously as a young woman. Yeah. I've had the chance to work with Sherry this year and I think what she's doing is absolutely fantastic. What's been really interesting with Think for the Future is as well as helping individuals and addressing problems at the very personal level, Sherry is also thinking about what needs to change in the system to actually be able to prevent these things going forward. And she's talking to schools, I know, as well as helping them with their troubled students, also looking at younger age groups, so year seven and eight, before people are involved in violence and saying how do we actually work with you and work with the school and work with their home to set them up for having good learning experiences and having positive life experiences going forward and that's something that Unlimited has been very mindful of how do we balance the fact that yes we need to make change on the ground and local solutions are brilliant but also we need to change infrastructure and we need to challenge government and we need to challenge some of the embedded structures that exist in society and that's really hard. Yeah it is but I genuinely think yeah, getting people with different perspectives involved in those systems is the way to do it. Millie, I actually had a question for you as a storyteller, someone who helps people create narratives. How do you balance the fact that you've got really personal stories that kind of tug at the heartstrings, but equally very complicated structures that people need to get their head around? And how do you kind of bring those two perspectives together? So basically, you know, I think stories are how we make sense of the world. And it's kind of how we relate to people on a human level. And I think you aren't going to become motivated and engaged with any kind of subject if you don't have any connection to it. So I think human stories can really kind of bring people in and, and they can kind of motivate people. How, how do you get around the fact though that they're just one story and people might say, well, that's not the whole picture? I mean, that's a difficult question. I'm not going to lie that in order to make any kind of change, you need to be emotionally engaged. And I think it's human stories that really give a heart to an issue. I mean, if you don't care why bother, basically? But if you hear a human story and there's hope and there's something that's relatable on that very human level, then that gives more impetus to start to make a change than anything else, really. Statistics and jargon is just a surefire way to shut down <laughs> anyone emotionally, isn't it? So Unlimited as an organisation, do you have to think about that system level and 
I know that a lot of the people who work for us are very motivated by those personal stories and we're so inspired by the entrepreneurs that we support. At the same time, we do have to think about how can we as an organisation best help them make a change And that sometimes does mean tackling those thorny issues that are beyond any one person and unfortunately dealing with some statistics and some data. Changing a system is quite a daunting prospect, but I think, you know, a story can, as I say, stories are how we make sense of the world and stories create empathy and stories create can inspire and I think it's through inspiration that we can create movement and motivate people to come together who have a shared interest and also again back to that point of connection you know connecting with like-minded people who have a similar goal. I think for me doing this episode has made me think differently about youth violence. Eliza was saying it can be a sense of community for people and how do we turn a negative dynamic in a community into keeping that community bond but harnessing it for positive action i think that's what she's done really brilliantly and i'd love to see others do that too And after all that, I certainly feel inspired and hopeful that there are people out there who are tackling this really important social issue. I hope that you've been inspired by the entrepreneurs that we interviewed. And if you want to find out any more details, they will be on our website, www.unlimited.org.uk. And also come and talk to us on Twitter. Let us know what you're thinking. Obviously, we'd love a review on iTunes if you can possibly muster one. You can chat to us on Twitter at a problem like and yeah I guess I walked into this episode feeling quite nervous and hesitant and slightly underqualified to talk on it but I do feel really hopeful and just so inspired by Sherry and Eliza we're going to leave you with some music you heard a small clip from this at the very start of the program it's a piece written and performed by Daniel who's a young man I work with at a charity in Brixton called Raw Sounds At the end of every term at Raw Sounds, the participants there put on a gig and Daniel got up on stage at the last gig and performed this and it absolutely blew me away. I was really moved and so I wanted to share it with you. I think it really talks about the issues we've been discussing today much better than I ever could. Over to Daniel. There's friends that have gained, there's friends that have lost At the end of the day, whoever's meant to stay is gonna stay Whoever's meant to go is gonna go So I'm down with that flow, it's a cycle of life You gotta learn to pedal as you're riding your bike These days all people want is to get likes on their socials And fake validation for your information You ain't no influencer, get an education Before whites were killing us, now blacks are killing blacks How you think that makes them feel? We're making our own blood spill I don't know what to say, I can't get in too deep I can say it in a rapper on a speech But it's hard when you're living in the streets and you getting too beef and you see a bro die revenge in your eyes death in his eyes and his last words was your best ride he took his last breath then he died so now you got no option but to ride so i get both sides they blame it on drill but it's deeper than that they blame it on drill but it's deep in the rap and this whole thing's a game now they call it scoring points when the death become a game that shit is so lame some even recorded for the fame i pray i won't die over materialistic gain it's an eye for an eye, so who's gonna break that chain? These days, bodies drop more than it rains. To all the grieving parents, no, I can't feel your pain. To lose your only son will make myself go insane. Change will only come when we change our ways. These days, the sun don't shine, just rays. 
I ain't got solution for the crime Or making all these cuts ain't gonna cut crime We need more money and time for the kids of today Let's give them a purpose to live for today